we are going through the book of Galatians. And what's fascinating about the book of Galatians, if, if, if you're brand new here, um, we are going to dive into um, what is probably, and this might be seem a little intimidating at first, but what's probably, frankly, the most complex um, 10 or so verses in the entire New Testament. Um, Paul, in the middle of Galatians 3, um, says some stuff that it's so layered, there's so much assumed information, um, that as he launches into it, he is explaining, in in a kind of a paradoxical sense, um, the simplicity of the gospel and the clarity of the gospel, um, but doing it in a way that took extraordinary complexity. And here's why. What Paul knew, um, which is true for all of us, is that whether or not you're a Christian... As you hear about the story of Jesus, there can often be cloudiness when it comes to faith, when it comes to specifically Jesus. Now, what I mean by that, and how I, when, I, when I use the, the term gospel from now on, essentially what I mean is this. There is a basic understanding that the condition of humanity is sinful. That's not a condemning thing, although it does you know, kind of universally condemn us. The idea is that we're all sinful. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Each of us can look back to probably this weekend to think about times we've sinned. We've had you know, entire seasons of our life that we look at. We're like, I'm doing better now, but man, that was real sinful. Or perhaps you're in that season right now and you're like, man, I'm sinful. I need to go to church. So that's why you're here because you realize one day and you woke up, you're like, this is sinful even for me, okay? So you decided to show up and again, we're so glad that you're here. But what happened is God saw that and he saw and he knew that in his perfection, there could not be imperfection like us. So he sent his son Jesus, performed lots of miracles to substantiate who he was, taught lots of extraordinary teachings that were very insightful, but ultimately died. Which, by the way, no one saw coming, which is difficult for us because we look back through history and we know of Jesus' death and resurrection. But when he died on the cross, he died and took our place so that when God sees us, in fact, When God experiences us in his presence, he does not experience sinfulness. He experiences his son, which is perfection. That God was the substitutionary justification of us. In other words, that when God looks at us, he doesn't simply look at us and say, okay, this person's forgiven. He looks at him and says, this person is innocent in whom I see no fault. And it's only because of Jesus. Now, as Paul is writing this, There is so many different thoughts swirling around the place of Galatia at the time. There's so much assumed information that, again, that's going to go into this text. Um, But the general idea is that they thought in order to get in God's good graces, we have to have a sense of morality. That if I'm going to be acceptable to God... If God's going to find me as favorable, if he's going to find me favorable in salvation, in fact, if God's going to find me favorable just in general life circumstances, then I have to behave my way into God's good graces. And many of us were raised to think that because you go to church very often. In fact, if you drive by a church, they'll tell you how you ought to behave. So much of the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of laws were based on behavior modification, behavior modification, behavior modification. That all of a sudden, this guy named Jesus came around, and his message was simple. It's no longer about how you behave. It's simply about faith. Now, your faith might impact your behavior, but it's not about cleaning yourself up first. It's about realizing that you're sinful, and then that faith, that belief that Jesus is the substitution for our justification and our righteousness changes everything, and not about our behavior. Now, this was very, very difficult for the historical tradition of Judaism to understand. 
because their entire life, in fact, their entire religion had been built off of behave, behave, behave. Act, act, act. Don't do this, do that. Don't do this, do that. In fact, for many of us, that's what Christianity has always been. Behave, behave, behave. Act, act, act. Don't do this, don't do that. And then eventually God will be happy with you once you clean your life up enough. And all of a sudden they said, it's only about faith. It's only about faith. It's only about faith. It was difficult for them to wrestle with because this would be similar to if you're in here and you're a Christian and you understand the implications of the gospel, this would be very difficult because it's almost like if someone came in next, you know, tomorrow and said, hey, God's done something miraculous and it's no longer about faith in Christ. Your relationship, your standing with God is now based off if you eat one banana a day. We would look at that and say, what? Like, that's ridiculous. That's ludicrous. Like, so it's not about Jesus anymore, the whole death, resurrection, cross, you know, brutal stuff that happened. It has nothing to do with that. I just eat a banana, huh? And we're right, right, right. Like, I'm going to believe that. And so what Paul would have to do is he'd have to go into the Old Testament and dig out that this was, in fact, God's plan the entire time. Now, before we get into the text, there's one thing that you just have to know that Paul's already said. In chapter 3, verse 3, He made a distinction, and this is what he said. He said, why now, if having begun in the Spirit, in other words, if your salvation was through faith, not through behavior, if your justification was through faith and not behavior, he said, why now, if you having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? In other words, this is what he's saying. Your understanding, my understanding as Christians of the context, of the idea, and of the implications of the gospel are not simply critical for salvation. They are absolutely critical for sanctification. You see, most of us live under the tent of idea that salvation is grace through faith, justification through faith, but life after that is lived as I try to live out the callings of God, right? And we get frustrated by that because we can't. We live under this way to perfection, and if I can behave my way and behave my way and behave my way. And this is what Paul would say. If you felt like that, then perhaps you're missing something. And so Paul is going to go in-depth to show us that this was the plan of God the entire time. Now, as we go through, we're going to hit some, hit some road bumps, and so I'm going to explain as we go. So Galatians chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 15. He says, brothers, or to give an ex- a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, this is the point where we go, okay, so I am already out on this sermon because I have no clue what he's talking about. So Paul, here's what he's going to do. He's going to give us a principle, and then he's going to explain why that principle is important, okay? So here's what he's saying. If you and I were to drop a contract, if we were to say, okay, you know, this is, let's say I'm, you know, I'm planning on dying, and this is, you know, my last will and testament, and, and I have a contract, and I'm writing up this contract, um, and once that is signed, sealed, and delivered, then if I die, ain't nobody changing it. So let's say I have two kids. I gave one kid, you know, there's one kid that's, you know, really rich, one kid that's not so rich. And so I gave the one who's not so rich a little bit more inheritance, the one who's really rich, not as much inheritance, they didn't need as much. And when I die, something crazy happens. All of a sudden, the rich kid, you know, gets poor and the poor kid gets rich. I've already determined, and we can't do anything with that contract. You can't add to it. You can't take it away. That they had this thing called a covenant, which was a contract for them. 
And once that contract is signed, and once that contract is sealed, nobody could add to it or take away from it. Now, here's, here's why this is important. He's going to say this next verse. He said, now, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Now, if you're in here and you're a lawyer, this might be your favorite Sunday for church, right? Because you know, that's what I'm talking about. Like, we're talking about annulling, you know, contracts and voiding stuff and, you know, on top of and in light of and all that stuff. Here, here's what he's saying. About 430 years after God made a covenant with Abraham, which, by the way, how the covenant happened was in Genesis 15, you can read it for yourself, God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to be my God, you're going to. I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. That we are going to have a relationship. And Abraham, as we make this covenant, what was normal for a covenant was that the two parties would enter into and there would be things that they would both have to live up to. And what they would do is as they made the covenant, they would do what's called cutting a covenant. Now, in our day, we do a much more humane version of this. We sign a piece of paper, okay? That's us. They didn't do that. What they did is they would get a series of animals, and they would, you know, if you're a um, vegetarian, hear earmuffs for a second. But they would cut the animal in two, and they would kind of set each side, and they would both walk through this um, really bloody, interesting mess to say, if either of us break this covenant, may what happened to the animal be done to us for breaking the covenant. But what's fascinating is Abraham falls asleep, and God walks through the covenant. As if to say, Abraham, this relationship is not dependent on your faithfulness. Abraham, this relationship is dependent on my faithfulness. And if either of us are unfaithful to this contract, I will die. Which is what exactly what would happen. The nation of Israel would be unfaithful to God just as you or I are unfaithful to God and ultimately it would send Jesus to the cross. But he says, but before we get there, God said there's going to be a promise of my faithfulness that I'm going to bless the world. This is going to be substantiation of it, the fulfillment of it. It's my seed who's going to be Jesus. But in the process of that, about 430 years later, a guy named Moses walked on planet Earth, and God gave him a set of commandments. In fact, we are pretty familiar with those. There's, there's actually, let me just pop quiz. How many commandments are there? Look at you guys. You're so smart. Ten commandments. And so this ten, these ten commandments typified what would be the rest of the law, the rest of the idea of morality of God. And so what he's saying here is, hey, let me just tell you. Just because the law came does not, you know, make void the promise. That the promise was the promise, and the, and the law does not have anything to do with the promise. In fact, the law would illuminate the promise, not be a condition. This was not God putting on top of. This was God saying, hey, there's the promise, but there's some other stuff that you're going to have to realize. So I'm going to give you the law. Now, I'm going to explain what the heck that means in a second, because that's a little bit vague and ambiguous. But he gets to verse 19, he says this. By the way, let me just pause and say this. Verse 19 through 22, um, a lot of the commentators will say is... The, there, there's over 300 different um, interpretations of verse 19 through 22. So if we're going through, through and you disagree, then probably both of us are wrong. Okay, so let me just say that. In fact, verse 20 specifically, the, the really smart people who you were know, honest in their commentaries say, this is what we think it means, but truthfully nobody knows. It's the most cryptic, you know, ambiguous, but defined stuff in the Bible. So just have a little patience. Verse 19, 
Why then the law? Fantastic question. So, if the promise of God of salvation is not about morality, it's not about behavior, then why would God give the law? Why would he give these Ten Commandments? Why would he give, in fact, why would that Ten Commandments typify hundreds and hundreds of other laws? If it is simply about faith and not about obedience, then why would God give the law? Because if God gave the law, I mean, come on, if it was just about faith, then couldn't we at the end of the day just take advantage of it? So he says, so why in the world would God give the law? What's the point? This is what he says. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now here's here's what he's going to continue to say. That at the end of the day, the point of the law was not to prove to us was not for us to be perfect. Was not to prove to us this is what you have to do and this is God's expectation of you. It was to show us that we are incapable of keeping the law. In other words, he would say, the point of the law was to show you that you can't obey the law. Now, one of the things that's difficult about this is we hear that and that seems almost unnecessary. But here's why I think that is. We live in a culture that is so satiated by the awareness of what God says or perhaps what God thinks or perhaps a general godly sense of morality that we know what it's like. In fact, you know what? You knew there was Ten Commandments before I even finished the sentence. You knew what I, most of you, you knew what I was talking about with Moses before I even finished So it's difficult for us to imagine, what would it be like if we never had the law? What would it be like if it was just us? What would it be like if there was never a Ten Commandments, if there was never an Old Testament, if there was never any of that stuff? What would it be like? You know what it would be like? Our goodness would be subjective to each other. I would base my goodness off of you, and you would base your goodness off of me, and we would base our goodness off of each other. In fact, isn't this true? When we compare ourselves to each other, we can make a really good case for ourselves. Because I know, like, you know, there's there's a lot of us, you know, your morality might be on the same page as mine, might be on the same page as yours. But we all know that one person in our friend group or perhaps our work circle or perhaps our family, that they are just crazy. And you're like, man, I know I'm not the best person, but that person is really not the best person, you know? When I was in high school and then in college, I had that friend that we probably all have that was just something was going on internally and just like everywhere you went, um, he, he wanted to fight everybody, you know? Somebody puts a drink on your table, and he's like, oh, that's disrespectful. <laughs> like, maybe his hands were cold. I don't know. Like, it was not that big of a deal. You know, you got that, that, that coworker, and they just seemed like everything they do, you're like, man, I'm not saying you should get fired, but you probably shouldn't work here anymore. You got that aunt or that uncle that's like, man, I've made some bad life decisions, but good grief. You know, they've made some bad life decisions. And so as we look at that, you know, subjectively, we can, to each other, think that you're bad or I'm bad or, you know, that person's really bad, but we can kind of make a case oftentimes for ourselves. Because for us, To realize that we are sinful, we can't have a subjective idea of what is right and what is wrong. And so God looked at it and said, let me tell you, if you want to gain my way into perfection, in fact, he's going to elaborate on this in verse 22 or 21, then here's what it takes. 
Before he does it, he gets to verse 20 again. Super cryptic, very difficult. This is what he says. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Now, that sounds really simple, right? We have no clue how that pertains to the argument, okay? He's building a cumulative argument here. He's building some thoughts and some ideas. And most people will look back and say, you know, the, the, again, the good commentators will say, in some way, shape, or form, Paul is basically saying, hey, the promises of God, you know, are, are you know, much better than the, than the law. And in a lot of ways, the law is subservient to the promises, but it's a whole lot of backstory in a context that we don't have time to explain, but just trust me, I'm a pastor, okay? And also trust me, I don't really know. And in fact, I love what Tim Keller said about this. He says, it seems like he's saying this. A lot of people think that he's saying this, but at the end of the day, no one really knows. So good news, if you ever read your Bible and you think, what does that mean? You know, you're not the only one who's ever thought that, okay? So moving on, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In other words, he's saying, hey, here's what happened. That the law was given to convince us of our sinfulness because, again, without that, our, our, our sinfulness would be subjected to each other's behavior, in which case we can make a wonderful case for ourselves. But when I look at the law, when I look at the morality of God, here's what I find over and over. I am sinful. This is why for us, saying we're sinful is not this, oh my gosh, you horrible person. This is just reality. This is just who we are. We know we're sinful because we take the law, we take the morality of God that seriously. And he continues on. He says this in verse 23. He says, now before faith came, he's going to give us an illustration. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, big idea that they understood in their culture that we don't completely, you know, get. They had guardians. So, if you were very wealthy, you would have someone who worked in your house. And their job, you, they would, it would be the wisest, smartest person. Your job as the guardian would be to take the kids... And to raise them, to help raise them, you would be the most wise, you would be the most righteous, and you would, in a lot of ways, protect the child. In fact, as the kid went to school, the guardian would be the protector and the guider, constantly teaching on the ways to and from school to make sure they got to the ha- from the house to the school, from the school to the house, and back and forth. They would be guarding, guiding, and leading towards something. And here is what Paul is saying. This is his point. That the promise of God superseded the law of God. That the promise was God's plan the entire time. And the law had a purpose. But the purpose of the law was to guide us step by step to the realization we can't do it. We can't perform. It was to show us, in fact, that we need A savior. And that the purpose of this is something that we've probably all felt before. Because if you've ever been in a church and you heard somebody talk about something we ought to do, some way we ought to live, and you felt so guilty because you didn't, 
Perhaps you felt frustrated because you didn't, because you had tried and you just couldn't do it. You felt there was this, this unreachable, unattainable sense of perfection. And you thought, good grief, no one can live up to that. No one's perfect. Why would God require that of anybody to be perfect? Here's, here's the beautiful thing. That is the point of the law. To help us to realize that we can't. If you've ever felt frustrated by that, frustrated by our inability to work and to live into perfection of the morality of God, he would say, you are a prime candidate for understanding that you, in fact, need a Savior. That you aren't working to earn your way into God's good graces. That it was teaching us, it was guiding us, it was directing us, it was showing us that we, in fact, needed Jesus. Not only in salvation, but in everyday life. In fact, he kind of summarizes it this way in verse 25. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, here's how you know if you get this. Here's how you know if you understand the implications of what Paul is saying here. You get this when at some point... You start living for God, not because you feel a weight of condemnation, not because you feel like you're going to make God happy or God's not happy with you because you did or didn't do something. It's because you actually believe God. It's because for the first time, you have actually believed. In fact, here's how you know. If you are actually living more obediently to God than you did before because of your belief in Jesus, then you probably get this. And here's what I mean by that. Let me kind of take this out of the abstract into kind of like a normal everyday life. So many of you know I have a two-year-old daughter. I talk about her pretty often, um, partly because she's the cutest thing in the history of cute little things. Um, and besides Caleb, because, you know, whatever. Um, just kidding. But here's the thing. As much as I love her, um, it, it, left to her own accord, um, she would probably die of overdose on uh, lollipops, um, gummy vitamins, and uh, kind of a mixture of cookies and donuts. Um, she just loves those things. I mean, like every morning, like lollipop, lollipop. It's like it's six thirty in the morning. No, this is that's ridiculous, you know. And you know, you know, seven fifteen goes around, and it's not like, hey, can I have some breakfast? It's like cookie, cookie. And it's like. No, we love you, but no, that's, that's ridiculous. So what we tell, you know, obviously as, as parents, she doesn't understand this, but what we're hoping is, you know, we want her to eat some fruits. God forbid we want her to eat some vegetables, you know, maybe actually have a little protein. And here's the crazy thing about her. She, she will eat bread over protein any day. It's like, here's some like great, you know, we got Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets, you know, God's food. And we try to give her chicken nuggets. She will eat white bread any day of the week over that. So anyways, so our hope, our hope is that as she grows up, she starts to understand, you know what? I actually believe my parents that this is better for me. It might be when she's 14. It might be when she's 18. It might be when she's 25. But at some point, she realizes that, you know what? What my parents are saying, I actually believe. That I am going to feel better if I actually eat well. If I eat fruits, if I eat vegetables, if I maybe eat some lean protein, and I drink water, I am going to be a healthy human being. Now, here's, here's what's interesting. For many of you, um, you know, because you live in the real world, that there's this, like, big hit, you know, fitness thing, and everybody's, you know, eating clean, and, you know, you're drinking some kombucha, kombucha, whatever that thing is, you know, you're drinking some of that stuff, which is interesting because it's, you know, stuff that's growing in there that seems kind of productive, but, you know, you're doing that, now, 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 
here's what you're saying. Because some of us, you know, you post on social media. It's like, oh, my gosh, I eat this green, organic, clean, water, hydration, protein, unbelievable. (laughs) Here's what you're saying. Your parents were right. (laughs) Your parents were right. They told you to eat your fruits and eat your vegetables and eat your dinner. (laughs) And they were right. Because you know what happened? At some point when you were two, that seemed confining. But at some point in adulthood, you realize they're right. I just feel better when I eat better. I look better. I feel better. I am better. I perform better when I eat better. My parents were right. Now, for a while, they were the guardian that was helping you to get there, not letting you destroy yourself, but putting parameters around you. But now that you get that, you live into that, and you know what? You eat better. In fact, the times that you don't eat good, right? If anybody's ever been on a cruise and there's 24-hour pizza, and you think of every single way, you like put the pizza in a blender with a couple interesting things, and let's just, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm just pizza. And then you get back, and you're like, man, I want a salad smoothie. Like, I feel like death on a stick, and I want to sleep for two hours two years, you know, you, you felt like that because you ate terrible and then you feel bad about it. And so you want to eat well. That is exactly like what Paul is talking about here. That when you understand that our behavior does not bring us into God's good graces, that I now obey God, not because if I don't obey him, God's going to be so upset with me but because I actually believe God. I actually believe that he said, hey, life would be better if you didn't go around lying to each other. So don't bear false witness to your neighbor. Come on. Just, you don't have to believe in God for this. Wouldn't the world just be better if people didn't go around lying to everybody? He said something crazy one day, like, do not commit murder. Wouldn't the world just be a better place if we didn't go around killing each other? He said, hey, do not commit adultery. You know, husbands don't cheat on your wives. Wives don't cheat on your husbands. Now, let me ask you, wouldn't the world be better if that didn't happen? At some point as adults, you believe so much in Jesus, you realize that, you know, my standing with God is not because of the fact that I have been a good person because I am sinful. But I realized under the crushing weight of the law, the law was not a substitute for faith. It was not a substitute for the promise. But the law was guiding me towards an idea that when I felt that crushing weight, when I felt that guilt, when I felt that condemnation, that I could not perform my way into God's good graces, that I realized that is exactly why Jesus came to planet Earth. John summarized this so well when he said, For God so sent his one and only Son not to condemn, condemn the world because the world already stood condemned but to save it and it's because he did that it's because we listen to him it's because we put faith in that that not not that we behave a certain way because we're trying to make God happy with us but we realize we cannot make God more or less happy with us because he's already ultimately pleased with his son Jesus who died for us that when he sees us he sees Jesus we now live because we actually believe God we actually trust God, we actually say, you know what? It's better if I eat my vegetables. You're going to be a better person. And you're going to be more glorifying to God. Not because you're trying to prove your way in. You can feel like, come on, in the way to the church, you can feel like because 
perhaps you haven't shared your faith. You know, perhaps you feel like, you know, man, I know I really ought to invite people. I really ought to invite people to church. No, <laughs> it's not that you feel like there's this, like, metric that God is guiding and guarding and directing and judging your level of evangelism. <laughs> it's that you genuinely feel like this is good news. Are you kidding me? That God, God of the universe, holy God, would send his son to die on the cross for me. And it only is the realization of my inability in placing my faith in his ability that I find myself in a right relationship with God. That is the most fantastic news. And I genuinely do not feel a weight that I have to tell people because God will be mad at me if I don't. But come on. I care about people and I want them to know. Good news. I want them to know there's a God who doesn't hold your sins and say, I can't believe you, you terrible, horrible person, but who saw our sinfulness, gave his son for our sinfulness, died for our sinfulness, and is fighting against us constantly to believe in that and not to believe in our own ability to earn our way into God's good graces. There's freedom that happens when that reality sets in. That the law was a crushing weight so that there would not be a level of subjectivity of our acceptableness to God, but that we would clearly understood, understand who God under, clearly understands us to be, which is sinful folk who fall short of a standard of which he did not expect us to fulfill anyways but was there to teach us that one day he was going to send his son, our Savior, Jesus. And we really needed him. And we continually really need him. We continually need to place our faith in our inability and not his ability. This is why if you ever battled with a cyclical pattern of sin in your life that you just can't seem to get rid of, perhaps it's because you're trying to do it. Because perhaps there's some lies that you've bought into that you think ultimately to be happy, you have to live this certain way, but God said this way. And the truth is, it's not a performance thing. You just need to believe God. There's a part of God that you don't believe, and you just need to unearth that. This is what Paul said. If you're now trying, if you started this whole thing in faith by the Spirit, why are you now trying to perfect it in the flesh? Why are you now trying to live it on your own? That was never the purpose anyways. So let me just tell you. Some of the application has been similar, things like this, but I just hope and I pray that as you leave here, you will go and embody Jesus, not because you have to, but because you are so convinced there is a God who so loves you. He gave his son to die for you, and you trust him. You trust that what he says is right. You trust that what he says is best. You place your faith in his knowledge, in his ability, in his spirit that lives inside of you, that compels you to live like him. Because you actually believe your parents that it's better to eat your fruits and vegetables than to go on living how you want to live. Not because you have to. Not because if you don't, you're not going to be here, kid. But because you actually believe it.